0: Listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Rhode Island History Podcast. Uh, This is Alex. As always, I have a really great episode for you today. I'm joined by three people, uh, Professor Cabria Baumgartner and Professor Jim Casey, and also John H. Mueller, who are experts in both black history of the United States and also uh, have been working on this project called the Colored Conventions Project project Uh, I'll include a link to the website at the bottom of this episode so you can check it out but basically from what I understand and what I gather is in the 19th century in particular there were a series of uh, conventions that were meant to bring black Americans together to talk about issues that are confronting the black community Uh, not just civil rights but but other issues as well not just Jim Crow laws and all that and what they got out of this was a blossoming beautiful community of you know as they mentioned in this interview people would come together that they hadn't seen in a long time they would recognize uh children as they were growing up and you know people like frederick douglas for example uh you know became veritable celebrities at, at these events so the reason that i had them on the show is because rhode island actually hosted two of these conventions and so, you know, using both John, Jim and Cabria to talk about this and, and articulate, you know, what does it mean that Rhode Island hosted these conventions uh, and and where what was Rhode Island's place in in, you know, black history itself. So I think that you'll really enjoy this episode. John does. John uh, spends a good part of the beginning of the episode just giving some basic context to what the colored conventions are. Uh, what they were. Um, but then Jim and Cabria get into a, a very detailed conversation about the demographics of these conventions, about the research that they're doing, even about the pedagogical um, uh, aids and tools that they're creating out of, out of the sources that they're getting from these conventions. So please listen into the whole thing. Thanks again for listening, and here are my guests. good afternoon
1: everybody it's a pleasure to be here with the distinguished panel and to be with Alex in the Rhode Island History Podcast. My name is John Muller. I am a local journalist, local historian, librarian here in the Washington D.C. metropolitan area. In 2012, I wrote a book on Frederick Douglass in Washington D.C. And this uh, research into Frederick Douglass brought me into contact with the Colored Conventions Project, which I believe was launched in around 2012-2013. There is a lot of overlap with uh, Frederick Douglass and conventioning, as well as uh, the leaders and participants of the convention movement. Frederick Douglass had uh, various connections and relationships with these individuals. Um, over the past 10 years, I've continued to research Frederick Douglass in, a, in the localized context. And I was doing some related research and came across uh, George T. Downing, who I'm sure that the, the the two panels can speak uh more eloquently than I but George Downing was a very very interesting gentleman who had a close relationship with Frederick Douglass and he was involved with two state-specific uh colored conventions in Rhode Island one in 1869 and one in 1882 and so that uh was kind of the genesis to contact Alex and uh to get together this wonderful panel great
2: Thank you, I'm Cabría Baumgartner. I'm a historian of the 19th century United States. Um, and I teach early African-American history and culture at Northeastern University in Boston, where I also serve as associate director of public history. And I recently wrote a book about the African-American fight for educational equality. That book is entitled In Pursuit of Knowledge, Black Women and Educational Activism in Antebellum America.
3: Great. And it's a great book and everybody should go out and get their copy. Um, My name is Jim Casey. I am one of the co-founders and now the co-director of the Color Conventions Project. Um, I work at Penn State where I am an assistant professor of African-American studies history and English as well as associate director of the very new Center for Black Digital Research. Um, I've been working on the Color Conventions Now for coming up on about 10 years, along with P. Garbell, Foreman and many, many other
0: wonderful, talented collaborators. And really look forward to the conversation. Great. Thank you all for joining today. Um, uh, as I, I mentioned before we started recording, there's a lot going on. So I understand that, you know, there's a lot of things that might be pulling our attention and our mind, but I'm glad that we could bring this together to talk about this history. Um, and I also mentioned before we started that my knowledge of American history is mostly, you know, an undergraduate level basic understanding. And so when you all contacted me about this, um, the the colored conventions that happened in the 19th century, I sort of, you know, I had to do my own research and dive into what exactly they were all about um, because it's not something that, you know, we learn in a survey class on American history. Um, so I was wondering, you know, just broadly starting off the conversation, what were the Colored Conventions? When did they start? What were their purpose? Uh, you know, just kind of introducing the listeners to what they were all about. I'm happy to start, but
3: I'm sure all of us can say lots about this subject. Um, you're in very good company not knowing about the Colored Conventions movement. It's a long, complicated, and very large history that has been left out of not just our school textbooks, but even a lot of our academic research. It's a movement that starts in 1830 in response to a series of anti-Black laws spreading across the country. Begins in Philadelphia at Mother Bethel Church with Richard Allen, Hezekiah Grice, and others from around the mid-Atlantic. But then it continues all the way until the end of the century. We don't know how many conventions were actually held. Our current guess is somewhere around five or 600 state and national meetings. And these were held by free and formerly enslaved Black leaders from across the country, both Black men and Black women, who were engaging in so many of these conversations, oftentimes out of a recognition that responses to current social, political, and economic problems weren't going to be um, as sort of quickly acted upon if they were working individually, but in working collectively and cooperatively. And so we've been working on this history now for about 10 years, as I said, And we've begun to put together just some of the major pieces that begin in largely in the Northeast in the antebellum period with basically every state that that you might think of. And then it really explodes after the Civil War and spreads throughout the rest of the country. And even among academics, the understanding really has been limited because for so long, the color conventions were treated as the kind of awkward stepchild, the kind of subjunctive of the anti-slavery movement. When in fact, when we look at the larger documentary record, what we find is that it actually starts a couple of years before the abolition movement was commonly dated in the early 1830s. And it continues long past the end of the civil war because of course, nominal emancipation was not the same thing as full freedom and liberation for black communities. And so even our own understanding has really evolved as we've begun to learn more and more about just quite how extensive this movement was. In the years 1865 and 66, There were more conventions in those two years alone than there were in the entire Antebellum period. And that's just to illustrate for us the volume of Black activism in the 19th century that goes so far beyond just the kind of few famous faces that might show up, you know, that we might hear about sometimes in our textbooks and even then only in concert with their white colleagues, right? We hear about some of the famous activists of the 19th century, maybe in relation to the abolition movement. But what happens, and I'm sure that John and gabriel can say a lot about this particular subject, when we set them in their larger circuits of black activism and be able to really understand quite how many of these meetings were happening, quite how many things they were talking about. And so I'm gonna leave it there and maybe pass the mic just because there's so much of this to talk about that I imagine that at least might help
1: us get started.
0: Yeah, either one are, are, are willing. Um... Uh, Gabriel, do you want to say anything?
2: Sure. I I would just echo everything um, that Jim has said in defining the Colored Conventions movement and um, really commend the Colored Conventions project um, for shedding new light on this, his period of um, African-American activism and organizing. Um, I maybe will hold off on my comments. I did want to talk a little bit about regional colored convention movements. Um, But I think I'll hold off for now and maybe John can jump in.
1: Sure. Sure, yes. Uh, Yeah, just to echo what uh, uh, Professor Casey said that um, at least with Rhode Island, from what I've uh, come across, both of the conventions are post-Civil War. Uh, the 1869 convention uh, is labor-related. I, I kind of have prepared remarks. This may take a couple minutes to read through. Um, if you don't mind, I'll just read through this, and then this might provide um, uh, a, a reference point for Professor Baumgartner to um, to kind of talk about the larger context of uh, New England within Mass. You know, Massachusetts is a uh, a real epicenter of, of conventioning and is, as Professor Casey mentioned anti-slavery movement but the Celtic convention movement is something um di- distinguishably unique and separate and different so okay so with no further ado I'll just read this like I said this this will take um a couple minutes to read but I think it just will help uh focus my comments as I am and have never had the honor and distinct pleasure to visit the state of Rhode Island this just kind of came across something uh in the research so I really appreciate uh making time to be here today okay So uh, the Lost History of Rhode Island's Colored Conventions. Decades before the first generation of Black Americans entered the halls of the United States Congress as members of the House of Representatives and Senate, a tradition of organizing regionally and nationally to debate and petition issues was established by antebellum Black American leaders as in what is known today as the Colored Conventions Movement. The Colored Conventions Project, established in 2012, has systematically compiled, cataloged, and transcribed these conventions across states, countries, and decades. The Colored Conventions Project, which can be found online at coloredconventions.org. They're also on Twitter. Uh, I believe it's CCP underscore ORG. It's a wonderful follow. Uh, They've received grants from the public private and public treasury, including support from the National Endowment for the Humanities to document, transcribe, and uplift this important field of academic and public history. And just, just to make the distinction, I'm uh, a public citizen, public historian who is a fan fanboy, I guess if that's the appropriate term, of the Color Conventions Project and have really benefited from uh, their research. Professor Bumgardner and Professor Casey are kind of the uh, administrators that have put this together and helped it grow. I'm just someone who's who's kind of followed it um, and, 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 and has benefited from the work that they put out there in the public. OK, so today I would like to offer up uh, two additional conventions to to add to the colored convention projects, evolving an expansive roster of conventions. And for those of you who've reviewed the website, the conventions are listed on a couple different ways year by year state by state, and there also were conventions held in Canada, which I am, don't really know that much about, but it's really actually is almost an international uh, movement, which um, Professor Bumgarner, Professor Casey can, can talk about, um, I'm sure, in greater detail in, in a moment. So the, the two colored conventions held in Rhode Island that I will briefly discuss today are historically unique and separate from other conventions and or organizational meetings, that were held in Rhode Island that included black Americans and or black men and black women around issues of suffrage, civil rights and politics. As well, these colored conventions I will discuss are unique and separate of meetings of the Rhode Island Anti-Slavery Society, which held its first convention in 1836. So what I mean is, for example, in December 1868, a Women's Suffrage Association meeting was held in Providence, Rhode Island with Elizabeth Buffum Chase, who uh, was an abolitionist. She served as president. Uh, there were other uh, anti-slavery abolitionists uh, who were at this event. The event was an integrated affair with addresses made by uh, white and black men, um, uh, white and black women and Frederick Douglass attended uh, this, this meeting, but this was this is separate than the purview of the, of the Colored Conventions. Additionally, in January, 1877, following the election of Rutherford B. Hayes of Ohio as the 19th U.S. President, a, quote, mass meeting of colored men, end quote, was held in Providence to consider the present aspect of political affairs. Letters were read from William Lloyd Garrison Wendell Phillips and Frederick Douglass. In-person addresses were made by George T. Downing and Reverend Malone Van Horn, two Rhode Islanders active in the Colored Conventions movement. And I'll discuss both of these individuals at greater length in just a moment. So this 1877 mass meeting of colored men, which adopted resolutions thanking President Grant and supporting the inauguration of President Hayes after the disputed contest of 1876, Uh, was reported locally as well as in the daily papers of New York and Washington City. So these just examples of conventions are separate than what um, the colored convention movement is, or was rather. Okay. Following the Civil War, Rhode Island, the smallest state with a big history, was the place of at least two colored conventions, both of which were attended by George T. Downing, a key conventioner in the colored conventions movement, and he attended dozens of conventions uh, across several states and in Washington, DC. In February of 1866, a delegation of Black Americans from different states of the country met with President Andrew Johnson in the White House in Washington to urge the interest of Black Americans before the federal government and chief executive. George T. Downing and Frederick Douglass both addressed President Johnson, who ultimately proved to be unsupportive of suffrage and largely unsupportive of civil rights at the time. Uh, In Downing's remarks to President Johnson in February 1866 at the White House, he alluded to the Colored Convention's movement saying, quote, we are delegated to come by some who have unjustly worn iron manacles on their bodies by some whose minds have been manacled by class legislation in states called free. The colored people of the states of Illinois, Wisconsin, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, New England states, and the District of Columbia have specifically, excuse me, have specially delegated us to come. And this was in the official recording of, of that meeting. Um, so this is kind of some of the, the, the pre-context of, of these, these conventions. In the late 1860s, Frederick Douglass and George T. Downing continued to work closely with an activist and political networks. Downing and other black leaders, along with supportive radical Republican allies um, or white radical Republican allies. For example, advocated for Frederick Douglass to start a newspaper in Washington, uh, D.C., which was eventually lost, launched in early uh, 1870. So uh, at issues uh, as the issues of suffrage, the debate between universal manhood suffrage and universal suffrage involving women, funding of education and establishment of schools, which I know Professor Bumgartner um, has done a lot of research on uh, kind of the education movement uh, within black communities and specifically Rhode Island. So as the funding of education and establishment of schools, the right to serve on state juries and other matters emerged and evolved, labor and unions took a prominent role in reconstruction organizing. And this is where uh, the first, that I found the first colored convention in Rhode Island occurs. In January, 1869, a national colored labor convention was held in Washington, DC, which was then followed by a series of state labor specific colored conventions, which were minimally held in Georgia, Maryland. There were two held in Maryland, one in August, 1869 in Baltimore, and then again in Baltimore, November, 1869 and Texas, and these are referenced on the Colored Conventions Project website. And as Professor Casey has mentioned, there's the estimates are five to six hundred conventions. There might have been more. It's just trying to locate those records, whether they're newspaper clippings or pamphlets that might be in some yard sale or something. But as Professor Casey said, following the Civil War, there's a real exponential growth of these conventions, and and in this time period is where this um, Rhode Island convention is occurring. So. Uh, in December 1869, from December 6 through December 10, a colored national labor convention was held in Washington, D.C. So, this was kind of the second convention, national convention that was held in Washington in 69. And this is because this is where all the senators and congressmen are, and they're pressing for federal policy. So in this context, in October of 1869, there was a colored labor convention held in Newport, Rhode Island, that George T. Downing and Reverend Malone Van Horn attended. Um, Just very briefly on Van Horn, he's a very interesting uh, individual. Um, Van Horn was born free in 1840 in Princeton, New Jersey, He attended Ashmoon Collegiate Institute for Colored Youth in Pennsylvania, which would evolve into Lincoln University. Van Horn was uh, ordained as an African Methodist Episcopal minister following the Civil War and was an educator in the South before settling in Newport, Rhode Island, where he would pastor the historic Union Congregational Church. In the early 1870s, Van Horn was elected to the Newport School Committee, uh, which is today like the local Board of Education. Van Horn would subsequently be elected as the first Black American to serve in Rhode Island's General Assembly, where he served multiple terms in the 1880s. In 1896, Van Horn was appointed as U.S. Counsel to St. Thomas in the Danish West Indies. This is before St. Thomas uh, became part of kind of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Van Horn would serve in that position until 1903, and he would ultimately pass away in 1910. So in October 1869, Reverend Van Horn and Mr. Downing are the kind of key leaders or organizers of this convention. I'll just read um, from some of the information about this October 1869 uh, colored convention in in Rhode Island. Quote, the Union Union Congregational Church at Newport, Rhode Island was well filled on Monday evening by the laboring men and their friends to consider the industrial questions of the day. The Providence Journal says that the meeting was called by Reverend Van Horn and was opened by with prayer by Joseph P. Shreves, which as a side note, Frederick Douglass spoke at a church in Hagerstown, Maryland in 1879, and Reverend Shreves, who was the AME minister, was there. So that's how I have stumbled in and out of this convention research because there's so much overlap. So, So the meeting was opened by prayer by Reverend Shreves, who had been an AME minister previously in the state of Maine. Uh, the following gentlemen were chosen officers for the evening. Reverend Shreves was president, J.W. Palmer and Thomas G. Williams, who was a prominent caterer, vice presidents, uh, and John docher secretary. Reverend Van Horn, George T. Downing, L.D. Davis, William Little, and others were called out and in response addressed the meeting. Mr. George T. Downing, uh, Van Horn and MS Haynes were appointed a committee on resolutions who reported the following, which were unanimously adopted. Resolve that we do heartily recognize the call issued for a national labor convention to assemble in the city of Washington, D.C. on the first Monday in December. Resolve that George T. Downing, Malone Van Horn, and T.G. Williams be that committee. Resolve that Mr. Shreve Van Horn Palmer Mary Nichols, Adeline Jones, and Miss Bowen be a committee with power to raise funds in aid of this movement, which demonstrates that the the um the meetings or the this convention was a co-ed uh, meeting that were men and women that attended, and so this convention held in October of sixty nine selected the delegates that would then go to Washington for the convention in December, and. Um, the Rhode Island Convention was actually reported in the National Republican Daily Newspaper in D.C. The records of the convention held in Washington in December of 1869, which can conveniently be found on the Colored Convention Project's website, reflect that the three delegates from Rhode Island were George Downing, who was listed as a hotel keeper in D.C., J.T. Waugh of Providence, who I believe Professor Bumgardner has, um knows a lot about Mr. Waugh, I don't really know who that gentleman is, Uh, He was from Providence, Rhode Island, and Mr. Van Horn, Reverend Van Horn, a minister from Newport. George T. Downing was selected temporary chairman upon the start of the convention in Washington and addressed the gathering. And so this is in December of 69, and Downing is foretelling the coming political wins. Downing said, quote, When the ratification of the proposed 15th Amendment to the Constitution shall have been effected with what has already been accomplished in the same direction, much of the adhesive element which has made the composite Republican Party a unit have disappeared. For it to hold together, it must have attractive elements. Let the party have a wise financial policy. Let it be mindful of the fact that the masses are becoming more and more intelligent, that the laboring man thinks and is therefore restive. The mass are becoming so they the expect and will demand some legislation in their behalf. They realize that by being united, they can be an influence equal to capital. That which is known as the labor movement is. I'm sorry. Uh, That which is known as the labor movement is growing in strength. I beseech our friends to be mindful of the same, to take such action in the premises as will draw to their party away from a corrupt, dishonorable influence and intelligent agitators reform in the matter of labor. They, with the colored laborers and voters, will be a host for the right. End quote. Uh, the 15th Amendment was ratified February 3, 1870. Later that month, um, Hiram Revels would be seated as United States Senator from Mississippi as the first Black American member of Congress. And in December 1870, Joseph Rainey of South Carolina would become the first Black American to serve in the House of Representatives. Uh, from 1870 to 1901, 20, 21 Black Americans served in the Congress. Some members served just a matter of weeks, and some members won re-election and served several terms. All right, so then fast forward about a decade. During the early 1880s, political indifference to the Republican Party began manifesting itself within the Black American electorate, which had had been a nearly monolithic Republican voting bloc in the Midwest, South, and North. Black Americans at this time began supporting the Exoduster movement, which was an early iteration of the Great Migration in which Black Americans from the South were encouraged and supported to leave and settle in northern areas. Frederick Douglass did not support the Exoduster movement counseling Black Americans to stay where they were, while younger Black activists such as Richard Greener, who was the first Black American to graduate from Harvard, supported the movement. With the dawn of the 1880s, prominent Black leaders such as newspaper editor and publisher T. Thomas Fortune broke with the Republican Party and declared themselves as independents, potentially courting the Democratic Party in local and national politics. George T. Downing was likewise one of the most prominent Black American leaders at this time to openly question the policies and commitment of the Republican Party to Black Americans as its loyal kind of voting block electorate. So in this context, so with, this brief, with this brief background this context, in October of 1882, a large, quote, colored men's convention, end quote, was held in Newport, Rhode Island that drew 50 delegates from Newport, Providence, I'm sure East Providence, East Greenwich and Bristol, quote, for the purposes of organizing for the advancement of their interests in the state. Thomas G. Williams, a prominent caterer in Newport, was chosen temporary chairman. George T. Downing served on the Committee's on Addresses and Resolutions. A.M.E. Zion uh, Minister or Reverend um, J.H. Anderson of Providence, who was originally from Frederick City, Maryland, was the first speaker of the evening. And he uh, said, quote, he urging a preference of principle to party, Uh, Reverend Anderson was reported as saying, it is a stigma of shame on a certain class of voters that they can be bought regardless of their professions. For 18 years, the Republican party has received the almost undivided support of the colored vote. And if we should be grateful to the Republican party for what it has done for us, so should they be grateful to us for our aid. But we are considered not men and citizens, but the tools of a political party it is supposed that the colored man will quietly continue a Republican with the grand privilege of voting the Republican ticket. We have not been accorded our rights because we have not demanded them, but now we are determined to secure them. Like Benjamin F. Butler, we reserve the right to change our political sentiments at will. End quote. William B. Sarrington followed, saying, quote, I believe in the doctrine to the victors belong the spoils, and I am a victor. Black and white fought together in the country's battles, and in the battles to come, their blood will mingle, and we claim a peace in the management of government affairs, end quote. And George T. Downing was next on the microphone. Echoing previous commentary, he said, quote, tonight we are here to take a manly stand for independence. We are not indebted to the Republican Party for our freedom, but to God Almighty and necessity." It was policy to save the Union and the Republicans and it was policy to save the Union and the Republicans in fact owe us gratitude. We have paid them all we owe them by our faithful allegiance. I wish it understood, however, that I have never advised colored voters to join the Democrats. But if the Democratic Party will be more consistent to Republican principles than the Republican Party, then go to the Democrat Party but I want all parties to go to the devil, end quote. It was actually a a Greenback Party candidate for governor who was a black gentleman uh, in Rhode Island also spoke at the convention, at this convention, but just moving on. So this is an interesting uh, point of like fissure within uh, the Republican Party and and black voters. Um, The 1882 convention was at minimum Integrated with at least one, quote, old-fashioned white abolitionist, end quote, reported to a local newspaper, Dr. Knox, quote, heartily endorsed the movement, end quote, although his, quote, remarks were extravagant and at times incoherent, giving the impression he was mistaking the present move of colored voters for office with the grand struggle for disenthrallment of the slaves of the South, end quote, uh, additional addresses were made by CFD Fairweather and others before passing resolutions to include, quote, resolve that we demand common respect and a fair representation in appointments prominent in others, not simply because of money consideration that usually accompany office, but that it may be sure that one class is respected and deferred to as our other citizens. Resolve that we will hold in contempt as a traitor to manhood and his race, that man who will permit his vote to be influenced by a tender of money or any other corrupting influence. A resolution was also passed asking the cooperation of the colored voters in other states and calling a national convention to consider what measures are necessary for promoting their interests as citizens. And there was a big uh, national convention in Louisville, Kentucky in 1883, which um, there was, there's a lot of discussion, Discussion and debate at the time whether that convention was needed. Frederick Douglass did end up attending. So, in closing, these two notable colored conventions in Rhode Island in 1869 and 1882 stand on their own as historic events, but are part of a larger portfolio and history of organizing within and among Black communities following the Civil War in pursuit of civil and political rights locally in City Hall in the State House, and nationally in the United States Congress. As a small state with a big history, these two conventions, these two colored conventions in Rhode Island demonstrate a history of local organizing and political agitation that contribute and expand upon the significant and consequential history of the national colored conventions movement, which can be found online at www.coloredconventions.org.
0: Oh, well, thank you for that uh, contextualization. That it was really thorough, um, and there's so much history behind everything that you said. That uh, I feel like we can unpack a little bit. In particular, I really liked the way that you ended it by focusing on um, the importance of local organizing and sort of how you know Rhode Island fits among the bit the larger history of these conventions, but it's also uh, doing something specifically for Rhode Island. In New England itself, um, and um, I know that uh, Professor Baumgartner wanted to talk more about the sort of um, localization of these conventions or the regionalization of them. So I think maybe that's a good opportunity to kind of dive into, you know, what what how did these conventions vary from place to place, and you know, were they responding to the same or different uh, issues? Of course, similar in some cases, but probably different in others. So let's just start there.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think John has provided a lot of wonderful context for understanding um, African-American organizing in um, the mid to late 19th century. Um, If we're thinking about the regional colored convention movement, particularly in New England, it really was this opportunity to bring Black activists together to strategize about pressing issues. And so John identified a couple of those issues that were still important, right? Post civil war, suffrage, civil rights and politics and labor and unions. And I think those same issues were important pre-civil war. Um, And probably the most salient issue was slavery, right? So a lot of these activists were organizing um, for the abolition of slavery and the fight for black citizenship. Um, One, regional colored convention that I've studied in particular um, was in 1858 um, in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Um, And I mention it because it's one of the few that I found although perhaps there are more and maybe Jim can talk about this. It coincided with the West India Day celebration. And I found that to be a pretty interesting moment. This is sort of the anniversary of the abolition of slavery in the British West Indies. And so there was this very joyous moment, this moment of celebration. Um, There was a military procession, there were black children and youth, there were speeches and resolutions, Um, but then there's also this moment and this time for black organizing. Um, And I found that really interesting to find these two um, events happening simultaneously. And I just wanted to say a little bit about um, the participants in these regional colored conventions. Um, Of course you have important leaders um, like George Downing, Frederick Douglass, um, someone I study, Robert Morris, but there are also examples of black children and youth who are at these conventions. So they're watching um, leaders discuss these issues. And I think that's modeling for them how they will take up organizing right, post-Civil War into the 1870s, 1880s and 1890s. Um, And I think that we can't um, um, overlook that part of the colored convention movement. It becomes almost like a blueprint. And and so I do wanna actually say something about um, labor and unions and Douglas, but I'll hold off a little bit um, because I do want uh, Jim to have a a chance to to share.
3: Thanks, I, I love that while you were talking you may be actually curious enough to go and look it up and i never noticed before that also the 1859 new england regional color convention meets on august 1st and part of why that's so fascinating is both because it shows us that these weren't one-off events that there was a real culture around these conventions it was a sort of school of thought it was a community of people who gathered these conventions but that august 1st date might be worth talking about a little bit more too because it was the day where Black communities in the U.S., but also far beyond, would celebrate as Emancipation Day throughout the British Empire. And it really goes to show that this movement, which was largely concentrated in the United States, was very much an international movement where people were constantly thinking about the possibilities and the plights of Black communities in places like Canada and the West Indies and in Africa. And there were fierce debates about whether or not they would think about moving there or not, including some of George T. Downing's, I think, sharpest comments at the 1859 convention uh, and some funny moments too, but maybe we'll get back to that. Um, but really an international movement where it was not just the local, it was not just the county-wide problems. They were always constantly thinking about the larger politics, the larger kind of intellectual traditions that fit across these moments. So I love it. I don't know how I had never noticed that before. So thank you for for sharing that because I think that that's such a kind of important moment. And there were, there were a lot of these kind of important moments that the conventions would be held intentionally um, on a sort of particular day. In the post period, some of the conventions were held either directly before or during some of the, the constitutional revision conventions that were being held. And so Black communities were speaking up about what the South Carolina or Virginia or Louisiana state constitutions were gonna say, um, these were organizing tactics. These were a form of what we might recognize today as a Black Lives Matter kinds of organizing. It was very decentralized. There was no kind of one body who said what happened. And anybody, anytime anybody confused that point, they oftentimes got a strong response um, from different communities, but it was a really kind of organically distributed movement where people would sort of use the call for a convention and the holding of a convention as a way to demonstrate the real political, economic and social power that Black communities had, oftentimes in direct juxtaposition to the limits of Black rights through formal government means. And that's a really, I think, important point that's easy to miss if we just look at one or two of the conventions is that they were a push for real redemption of some of the basic of rights of citizenship, about voting, about the right to testify before a jury of your peers, about fair access to education, about labor rights. And part of the reason why we really resist sort of distilling the convention movement down to just a couple of topics is because it was such a broad array of those topics that fit into those spaces. And so what applies to conventions in Rhode Island may apply to conventions in Texas or California, but we also see a much, much wider diversity of conversations, of people, of networks. Um, And so part of the reason that we're always so sort of eager to share this with people is because we need more help. We need more folks coming and helping us to think through, as John has done, as Cabrera, as many other folks have done, um, to understand this movement. Because there is no one single story to be told. There are many, many stories that, that we could dig into. So I'll leave it there because I think there's probably a lot more to say even on that particular subject.
0: Anybody else wanna say anything about uh, organization-wise about the, the conventions? Uh, just just a couple um, quick points.
1: There is um, a tradition of like Emancipation Day parades and events. Uh, Frederick Douglass spoke at emancipation events in Delaware, uh, New York, West Virginia. There was an annual one in Washington, DC. As uh, Professor Casey had mentioned, there there's emancipation reference points regarding the emancipation proclamation issued by Lincoln, of of January one, sometimes in September, but then there's also, uh, the reference point of the uh, British West Indies emancipation. And I believe, uh, one of Frederick Douglass's quote, if there's no, if there's, if there's no struggle, there's no progress. The people who want crops with no rain and, uh, one of th- that quote is when Douglas is addressing a celebration on West Indies emancipation, and so some of these, um, these, these like, uh, what they say, save, save the date, like the save the date, the 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 emancipation uh, context is not just uh, the United States struggle for emancipation, but also kind of the, I guess, Black America. Really, Black American diaspora. I don't, I guess, Black diaspora. I don't really know if that's a technical term or or diaspora of African peoples around the 1850s, 1860s. That Black Americans are very aware. um, And I guess my research with Douglas is they're very aware of what's going on in um, other countries, in France, in in the uh, United Kingdom, as well as in Canada. And so you see some of the overlap, and there are, I mean, Harriet Tubman and Josiah Henson and other well-known American kind of um, anti-slavery, black anti-slavery activists, abolitionists spend, spend periods of time in Canada. So Canada is part of also this kind of colored convention movement. And there's overlap where um, it is, a, as Jim said, it's kind of organic local happenings, but then there's also the context of what what is uh, what is the connection to the larger issues happening um, across the country. So I, I don't know if that was very articulated very well, but that just struck me as you were saying that. Another thing I'll say that I am um, not a scholar in any way of Rhode Island history. I've, like I said, never had the pleasure to visit Rhode Island. But one thing in, in researching the uh, Continental Army, uh, it was very interesting that when uh, what would become the United States fought versus uh, Britain in the, the Revolutionary War, The southern states, for example, Virginia uh, or Georgia never armed um, black soldiers, whether those were free black folks or enslaved folks, there was never, um, Maryland had black soldiers. Some of these soldiers with the Revolutionary War Pension Act of 1818 received actually their pensions. Frederick Douglass, when he's a young person on the Eastern Shore, knows some of these individuals. And in New England, there's a concentration. And I mean, these numbers, uh, Benjamin Quarles and some other scholars have said that at 20 20 to 25 to even maybe as much as 30% of all of the Continental Army troops uh, or soldiers uh, were Black folks. Then you could also have, there's different, maybe the Teamsters or the different positions, maybe not just infantry. And um, there's a large concentration of Black soldiers in the Continental Army and I believe that Rhode Island had a specific uh, all black uh, regiment or all black unit. And um, some of these gentlemen live very, very long lives, lived to the 1850s, 1860s. And when Frederick Douglass is um, traveling throughout New England, New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, Rhode Island, this is in the 1840s, he is in contact with some of these old, very, very old soldiers that could say I, you know, remember seeing General Washington, as uh, Professor Bumgarner mentioned, Douglas also knew some of these soldiers' children, some of these soldiers' grandchildren. So Rhode Island has, I think, a unique uh, history. I don't know if I would say like they were maybe more progressive than other states, but in terms of Rhode Island, was deliberate in arming black soldiers during the uh, Revolutionary War. Following um, American independence, uh, black folks were able to vote in Rhode Island, I believe. I don't know if that was a county-based or localized or statewide, but uh, and Professor Bumgarner may be able to speak about education that some of the... Um, George T. Downing was an advocate for kind of integrated education or equal education. And so Rhode Island has a little bit of a, as Professor Casey mentioned, a little bit of different history than like a Georgia, South Carolina, Texas, where some of the southern states probably didn't really start to grant civil rights legislatively to Black Americans until after the Civil War, where, whereas Rhode Island has a unique history of a little more uh, freedom and equality in terms of law, and, um, and so Like I said, I don't know that these are very very well articulated thoughts, but just a couple of thoughts try to to focus on Rhode Island and I'll I'll stop there.
2: I can share a little bit about um, George Downing and um, I think maybe how his activism before the Civil War may have shaped his activism post-Civil War and then his presence um, at these uh, labor conventions. Um, So George Downing was an African-American activist and caterer from New York. Um, He was an equal school rights advocate. Um, He followed the equal school rights struggle in Boston and watched the victory that happened there among black leaders in 1855. And he wanted the same um, for African-Americans in Rhode Island. So he became a proponent of um, school integration. He was also an advocate for black higher education. Um, his own children were very uh, well educated. Um, and so he was the one along with his wife, Serena DeGrasse Downing um, and other African-American leaders really leading the charge for school integration in Rhode Island in the 1850s and 1860s. And to John's point, um, Rhode Island was the second state um, in New England to pass equal school rights legislation and they passed that legislation in 1866 and essentially it forbade the school committees uh, from using race to classify students in public schools so it it effectively um integrated the public school system and that was a huge victory in rhode island Um, and i think for george downing um it really gave him a sense of um organizing activism, that sort of continuous struggle um, can reap these kinds of benefits, can can reap these kinds of victories. And so Downing was very much um, in contact with um, African-American activists in Massachusetts, but also with Douglass. And so I'm not surprised that after there was this equal school rights victory, that there were still other issues, right? That African-Americans had to agitate for um, throughout the 19th century, like labor.
3: wondering if I could ask actually a follow-up question, um, which is that so far we've been talking about all of the men who helped to lead the color conventions, but one of the things that we know from the work of people uh, like my collaborator, P. Gabrielle Foreman, Sarah Lynn Patterson, Psyche um, uh, Williams-Forson, many, many other researchers, is that what we see in the official published minutes and proceedings of a particular convention, or the newspaper articles, or the even the the pamphlets that came out of many of the conventions, is that what we read as the so-called record of what happened is oftentimes a very deliberate recording of particular things that happened during the conventions. And the meetings themselves were much more interesting than what shows up on the page. If you think about when any of us go to conferences or conventions, where are the most important and interesting conversations? It's not when we're behind a table on a panel, it's when we're in the hallways or having dinner or late night staying up talking with each other. And that intervention has really helped us to think about the role of black women um, in the conventions as real drivers of the activism, it's real intellectual and political, intellectuals and political organizers um, in ways that really sort of expand what we understand as the conventions. And I I think of a lot of that work, at least a lot of my understanding of that work um, is based on the work um, that Cabrera and other folks have done around education as well. So I'm wondering if I could sort of prompt you a little bit just to talk some more about um, some of the ways in which black women through the vehicle and through the conversations around education were engaged in these kind of larger conversations. Um,
2: yeah, that's a, that's a great question, thank you. Um, I was thinking about someone like Maritza Lyons who was an African-American girl. She grew up in, in New York City, um, part of the Lyons family. And then after the New York City draft riots, her family relocated to Providence, Rhode Island. And um, she really faced a lot of um, inequality uh, as she was in pursuit of knowledge, as she was trying to attend Providence High School. And she was made to sort of attend grammar school um, again, even though she had graduated from a grammar school in New York City. Um, She was constantly denied attendance um, or admissions at Providence High School, even though she had passed the entrance exam. Um, This is right, this moment of school segregation. Um, And we actually have a record of her speaking before the Rhode Island state legislature, uh, pleading for educational equality, right, hoping for an opportunity for herself to go to Um, high school, but for all Black children and youth to have um, equal educational opportunities. And I think those efforts uh, from African-American girls and women um, really expanded the fight for equal school rights um, and also the fight for civil rights. Um, You find that African-American women, um, they are oftentimes in attendance at these conventions, um, but right, they might not, their presence might not be uh, written about in um, the minutes. So we have to look at other sources um, to try to find exactly what their contributions may have been. And by doing that, we see women, girls and women like Rich Alliance, who speak before state legislatures, who sign petitions who help to fundraise right? Um, in this context for education, but also um, in relation to other issues.
3: Thanks, I, I love that. If if folks do have a chance to visit the Color Convention Project's website, you'll see at the very top an image um, scanned from a, an engraving that somebody made about the 1869 convention. And part of the reason that we love it so much is that it gives us a completely opposite view of what most of the published records give us of the convention. Usually we hear about who's on the podium, who's saying what, and then who's moving what and who's leading this or that committee. And in this image, which if you look at any of our stuff, you really will see it very very frequently used. We see that most of the people in the back of the room aren't even looking at the podium. You can barely even see the the speakers at the very front. And what we see instead are people who are Wearing very formal clothing, we see young uh, young women and children in the back who are talking with each other, and we really like to think about that as one of the kind of intellectual centers of of these convention movements. And so we just we've loved for, for a long time how much this image really does kind of reset our notion of what it means to talk about these kind of activist histories um, beyond just the kind of famous few faces that we might recognize.
2: And I would just highlight. Um, the exhibits that are on the CCP website, um, which are so helpful for uh, teaching and research. Um, There's a great exhibit, Psyche williams horsons exhibit on um, like food food ways and food culture and the convention movement. Um, But I was wondering, Jim, if you want to talk a little bit about your digital humanities work in um, uh, the colored convention um, movement, because I found that to be really fascinating.
3: Uh, Sure, thanks. I'm happy to start, and um, I'd love to invite everybody to, to sort of add on. We have been working on trying to get a sense of what a map of this history might look like, as I said, for many, many years now. And I think we're not even halfway done, which is sobering or inspiring, depending on the day. And as we started to put more and more of these documents together, we said, okay, our initial view of maybe 65 or 70 conventions was clearly limited okay, there were probably a hundred conventions. And then our amazing team of researchers kept finding more documents. And then we thought, okay, maybe there were 200 conventions, maybe 250, maybe 300. And quite frankly, nobody really had a chance to sit down and read all of these documents. I'm still not even sure if anybody's who's alive has had a chance to sit down and read all four or 5,000 pages worth of these documents. And As the history, the volume of the history grew and grew, we realized that we were gonna need to find different ways just to try and get our arms around all of the things that were involved, all of the people, all of the places. And so we did a couple of things. First, we put together a website, which we hope has improved over the years, thanks to the amazing work of folks like our project manager, um, and now our colleague at Penn State here, Lauren Cooper. Um, and Michelle Burns and many other sort of wonderfully talented people. Um, And so we've been working on the website just as a way of of kind of providing and expanding access. Um, We've also done some work to try and gather information about what's actually in all of these documents that we've managed to collect. And this has been an interesting and and long-winding process that we're still, I think, really trying to understand the full extent of. And the process goes something like, how can we start to draw out pieces of information that let us see the connections between so many of these conventions and so many of these people? And that's really where we started to learn about George Downing, because he attends many of these conventions. He attends at least 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. We think that there's more out there that he went to, given how important he was in Washington, D.C. at the end of his life but he actually doesn't say a lot at many of these conventions. Sometimes he has a lot to say, but there are other conventions where he's in the room and clearly influencing the proceedings as many others would, but he wasn't then going out and writing long op-eds or pamphlets under his own name. And so George T. Downing came to our notice as one of the people who was really a kind of bridge builder between different communities in New York and Rhode Island, Washington, D.C. and elsewhere as a, a kind of person that everybody knew. You know, we said, okay, we wanna understand the social networks of the conventions. Well, who went to conventions with who? And we found that there were a couple of these individuals who were really not famous in the in the sort of broader sense, but who were effectively the person that everybody knew if you were part of the conventions community. Um, and so George T. Downing and then Amos Beeman, um, the Connecticut minister was another of these figures. Amos Beeman wrote a little bit more than George D. Downing did even, but they show up at more of the conventions in different places and connect these movements. And so the work that we've tried to use some of the, the sort of digital tools for is to try and sort of map out what do those networks look like and who were those people who were sort of constantly in the background of many, many different scenes um, and try and understand how, for example, George D. Downing or Amos Beeman might have different kinds of relationships with Frederick Douglass who tended more often than not to be behind the podium rather than behind the scenes. Um, And we find that these are lifelong relationships. These are not just six months or a year at a time. These are more than half of all of these people's lives that they spent going to these conventions. Um, And so I'm I'm sure uh, John can add a little bit there as well um, about some of the ways that these figures really did tie together so many different communities.
1: It's a wonderful segue. Uh, thank you, Professor Casey. And yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really just sitting back and learning uh, from the great conversation. And in terms of the, the the convent, the Colored Conventions Project website, they really have done a wonderful job of bringing uh, attention and uplifting the context of George T. Downing uh, and some other kind of like mini biographies. There's a gentleman named Reverend Isaiah C. Weirs or Weirs, depending on how you pronounce his name, he was. Uh, prominent uh, AME minister, barber in Philadelphia. Uh, some sources say he was from Maryland. I can't really determine, but I believe that, um, long story short as Douglas would know some of these gentlemen, whereas um, either he was a young person attending these conventions in the 1840s, 1850s, and there might've been someone who was in their 60s or 70s. Douglas would then know their their children or grandchildren when they attended Howard University, and at the graduation could say, "I you know have these great memories in nineteen or excuse me excuse me in eighteen forty you know three there was some trouble stirring in the town center and you know nobody would." would allow me to stay with them. And your grandfather stepped up and said, Mr. Douglas, I have a bed. And then Douglas might say, I'd love to have you over to my house at Cedar Hill and you know we can discuss life memories or something. There's, there's many um, individuals where Douglas, because he lives such a long life, he dies at 78 years old in 1895, whereas some of these organizing networks and associations and connections that, um, and has been previously kind of stated, there's overlap with... Uh, the A.M.E. Church is formally founded in 1816 in Philadelphia, and uh, there's the A.M.E. Zion, which is kind of more New York, uh, New England area. And so, these networks and associations are uh, blueprints for kind of organizing. And then you'll see these uh, th- these prominent families are leaders in uh, business enterprises, whether those are transportation uh you know barbering the first banking institutions and through and through these networks um, there's continuation between several generations. And so so some of these as, as Professor Bumgarner mentioned, I'm sure that um I mean Douglas's children, Lewis Henry Douglas, Charles Douglas, Frederick Douglas Jr. they attended conventions. they might not have had as prominent role as their father. Uh, might not have been written up in the meeting minutes, but you have, it's an intergenerational uh, activity. And as Jim was mentioning on the uh, website, there's a print that kind of shows from like the back looking towards the stage and you can see kind of the discussions, you know, the very respectful conversations that are happening in the back where people, oh, I haven't seen you in a couple of years. How is so-and-so? And so people are kind of catching up and, and through these networks, there's an element of, uh, of, of trust, And loyalty, and this is also then transitions to political networks, and you have kind of the politicking of the uh, African American community was largely Republican, as we kind of talked about a little earlier, and so you have kind of as these members of these colored conventions are then transitioning into politics you have some of the loyalties and allegiances and kind of almost factions if you will like John Mercer Langston is a frequent attendee at a lot of these um colored conventions John Mercer Langston was an ambassador to Haiti uh appointed by President Hayes he was a uh short-term uh congressman from Virginia he was the president of Howard University so you have um there's just a lot of overlap where these individuals are that have access to opportunities are then reaching back to help out uh, their own families as well as families that they're connected to. And then these families feel an obligation to um, mutual benefit societies and philanthropic efforts to support orphanages and uh, scholarship funds and night schools. And so I just think that, as has been previously stated, the Colored Conventions movement is something that I never had the opportunity to learn about in school. You might hear a little bit about, like Henry Heinlearn Garnett in 1843 gave a very radical address, but it's really just kind of a small little footnote. And uh, the work of the Colored Conventions project has helped to elevate and bring this movement into greater focus. And then I think it's a great reference point to then help understand better some of the networks and associations that Help to like establish uh, certain you know universities, or um, kind of the, the political maneuvering in in certain states, and even nationally when you have um, Robert Smalls and other gentlemen kind of entering entering Congress, and kind of you can track how maybe um, it took a couple of years for the organizing to happen that that enabled a certain congressional district to elect this person to Congress. So. I don't know that that's like I said, I don't know. I, I, I'm a little uh, at a loss for eloquence because I am, am overwhelmed by the great conversation. But I just think that the colored convention movement is a really important uh, aspect and field of kind of emerging, continuing research. And it really has been a great. Um, it's been great to kind of witness the, the, the database and the resources grow uh, kind of a, as an outsider because it is a great reference point. I know that there's also a book, I don't know if the book has been plugged, but there's a book that's a compilation of essays that I know has been uh, used for course adoption. And then I think that for, for scholars, uh, such as uh, Professor Casey and Professor Bumgartner, it's a great resource to kind of teach um, not just Black American history, but kind of almost movement organizing history in 1800 America in a new way, and uh, I am just very appreciative to all the work that has been done uh, to build this great this great uh, resource.
3: Thanks, John. You can tell he's he's the old pro in this group about sharing all of this kind of research um, to think about doing things like mentioning the book that was published in 2021. Um, it's called The Color Conventions Movement: Black Organizing in the 19th Century. It's available from UNC Press in a paperback copy. If you look around on their site, you can find a discount code uh, and get the price of that book down to about 18 bucks. We really wanted it to be accessible to lots of folks so that we can share more of this history who could come and help us understand it all the better. The other way that folks might be able to get involved as well is by looking at some of the exhibits um, that are available on our website at colorconvention.org, which have, been increasingly enriched over the years um, by a number of things, including primary sources, including lots of fascinating discussions, including um, the exhibit, one of my favorites on black women in higher education, um, that was inspired, shaped and adapted from uh, Capri's chapter in the the essay collection. Um, And I'd also like to give a sort of nod of the hat to Denise Berger um, and Sam DeVera, brilliant graduate students on our team, who have been working tirelessly during the pandemic to create lesson plans that go with each of the exhibits so that teachers who are in AP US history classes, but also um, in all kinds of different social science or history uh, environments can be able to use these exhibits in your classrooms so that students can really get a sense that just a couple of documents that we tend to get in our history courses are not even close to representative of the fascinating, oftentimes emotional, dramatic conventions um, that took place. And so we'd really encourage folks to browse the exhibits and then look, they now all should have teaching tabs where you can find ready to use resources. Um, And we'd love to hear about folks who are making use of the the materials um, in classrooms and research Um, and elsewhere by sharing it with us on social media. our contact information is available there as well. Um, So thank you, John, for for thinking to mention those. That seems like an important part of it. We appreciate that.
0: Um, So I've had you all for a little bit over an hour now. I don't want to take all of your evening, Um, but because you have, because both Jim and John have mentioned uh, teaching and Professor Baumgartner is a teacher, and so is uh, Jim Casey. Uh, I wanted to ask you, in practice, uh, how does how do students receive these resources? How are they engaging with them? And 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 what do you see as your role for for getting them to engage with these? I mean, what are some ways that you do use them?
2: Yes, I can I can speak to that. Um, I, I taught a graduate seminar on. You know, African-American archives. Um, and the, one of the projects, one of the assignments was looking at um, the Color Convention project, um, looking at those digital exhibits and um, actually seeing if students could do more research. So what I really like about this is that it's a collaborative digital humanities project and there is a way for everyone to get involved. It's not strictly for scholars um, or anything like that. It's very democratic in that sense, very accessible. Um, So my students looked at the New England conventions 1850s, 1860s, and identified um, some of the uh, delegates. And then they looked at African-American newspapers to see if they could find more information on those delegates. And it was a great exercise because they were using Excel. So they're actually learning some really, you know, great tools, great skills, um, learning a lot about searching databases Um, learning a lot about categorizing information. Um, I think they also just learned a lot of Black history, right, connected to New England, um, and they appreciated that as well. Um, So I really like the color conventions because it is hands-on and it is accessible.
3: That sounds like a really fun class. I'll offer maybe a, a slightly different example, which is that we have been working with a number of educators in DC public schools and the Philadelphia school district who have been using some of the speeches from the conventions alongside the exhibits. There are some really fascinating speeches all across the entire movement. Just a couple of them maybe to to point folks towards. Um, In 1843, as John mentioned, the Reverend and, and fascinating activist, Henry Helen Garnett stands up and gives a speech as part of the business committee in which he says, effectively, it's better to fight for your freedom and die from that fight than to live as an enslaved person. And there's a lot of controversy because everybody's having different perspectives about how bold they wanna be about speaking out in those terms in 1843. Um, In the immediate postbellum movements in 1865, 66, onto 69, there's a real thought, real school of thought in many of the speeches in the conventions that this country is going to move towards a, a sort of version of itself where black communities are gonna be able to exercise their full civil rights. It's a fascinating sort of brief moment in time. It doesn't last very long, but it's there where you see people who were enslaved maybe only six months before all of a sudden standing in state legislative halls talking about freedom and civil rights and about the right to trials by juries about citizenship. And that's a moment that I think a lot of us are trying to understand in this moment, because it seems to reflect on so many of the conversations that we're having now. The last one that I'll point to that I think John alluded to a couple of times is the 1883 National Convention, where Frederick Douglass stands up and gives what we've decided is maybe one of our favorite speeches across the entire movement. And we've begun calling it amongst ourselves, the why hold a color convention speech. And he stands up and he talks not just about why is it important to have conventions where they talk about black communities, sort of ranking issues, but why is it important to have black activism overlapping and exceeding political party politics. And he goes through and he talks even through versions of the all lives matter argument um, and I'd encourage folks to go and look at our site to read a version of it. We were also very fortunate to be able to work with an actor, Hassan Al-Amin, who gave us a dramatic reading of it that really opened it up for us to realize that Douglas could be a very funny guy in some of his speeches. He's got a lot of kind of stinging sarcasm um, in the speech that he gives in 1883, rehearsing some of the arguments that he finds maybe not so Uh, Useful, And so if folks want to go and look at some of those spaces from 1843, from the 1860s and 1883, I think they'll find lots and lots that students will find really engaging to get to read, to talk about with each other and to debate many of the issues that they mentioned in those speeches.
0: That's really great. Um, Thank you all so much for coming on and talking about this project. is there any, any last words that any of you wanted to get out? I did want to ask a question about reception and numbers at these conventions, uh, like how many people showed up, but there doesn't seem to be that much time. So I, I assume that that is also information that people can find on the website too, right?
3: There are versions of that information that folks can find on the website. I think that's another place where our imaginations are actually really important parts of understanding the history. Mm-hmm. The documented record is still very thin, even after 10 years. But when we see engravings like the one on our on our homepage, it helps to remind us that if a pamphlet or a newspaper article lists 30 or 40 or even 200 delegates, the people in the pews and in the hall and in the extended life of the conventions were easily numbering in the orders of magnitude, larger, larger numbers. Um, this is a movement that probably had somewhere between 10, 12,000, 15,000 delegates. And so if we imagine how many more people would have been in the halls when they're having those conversations or at the meetings where they elected delegates, this is easily a movement that would have had 80 or 100,000 people involved across the 19th century. And that, I appreciate you asking that question about the numbers too, is because that's also very important for us too, is that this was a mass movement. This was not a few people from relatively elite backgrounds just talking to each other, this is a mass movement. And that really challenges a lot of how we understand American history as something where we just have a two week section in our history, English history, excuse me, high school history classes, where we learn about the civil rights movement and a couple of figureheads, and that's it. The convention movement really does challenge us to understand that Black activism isn't just an exceptional thing that happens in a few points in American history, but really is one of the few constant and unrelenting. Streams of, of this history that we need to learn about, and so these conventions help to understand and open up a lot of that for us.
1: And when we do the historic roll call, Rhode Island, Newport, Providence, Bristol—those communities uh, check in with representation.
0: Yeah, it's great to hear that Rhode Island was a very act played a very active role uh, in the conventions. Um, So again, thank you three so much for coming on. Uh, It's been a pleasure to learn from you all. Um, And I I really hope that listeners will get a lot from this. I'm sure that they will. So thank you.
1: Thanks, Alex. Great conversation. Thank you.
0: See ya.